if you're able, would you remain standing? And we're going to turn to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 18 and read through verse 24. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, this is the word of our Lord. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would... Open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you, concerning Christ, and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. God desires that his people, those who have been born again and come to faith in Jesus Christ, desires them to know that they are secure in His hands. God wants His people to know that nothing can separate them from His love in Jesus Christ. God wants His people to know that they are secure in the hand of Christ. He wants them to know that they will persevere to the end. So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has now for almost three chapters been showing the church what true assurance of faith is built on. And he says that true, true assurance of faith is built on three things. On what you believe concerning Jesus Christ. Do you believe everything the Bible says concerning Christ? Do you believe in the whole Christ, both man and God, fully human and fully divine? Two, true assurance is based on your following God's commandment. Are you obeying what God commands you to do in the scriptures? In three, assurance comes as you love the people of God in his church. John says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you don't have to be looking for some inward assurance, that assurance can be objectively achieved by following what God says in His Word concerning Christ, concerning His commands, and concerning the brethren. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 3, John says that he's writing these things so that we know that we know Christ. Not just that we know Him, but that we know that we know Christ. John has been a pastor, now we're in some form of ministry capacity, for almost 70 years by the time he writes First John. He knows that there are those in the church that will hear what he's saying concerning assurance of faith and will feel unduly condemned by it. 
That is to say, they will feel condemned when they shouldn't. That they're going to hear the idea of loving the brethren and believing in Christ and obeying His commandments and are going to wonder, oh man, am I really doing this? And are going to analyze them uh, themselves beyond what they do and going to feel unduly guilty. So, he writes this passage that we read today so that they will not be unduly guilty they, because they are lacking assurance when they should be fully assured. All of us, I think, have been in that category at one point or another of our Christian life. It is likely that all of us have found ourselves wondering, am I truly saved at one point or another? The next couple of sermons will hopefully be helpful in answering this question. Am I truly saved? In verses 19, 20, 21, John uses the word heart. And uses the word heart to represent a specific part of our nature. What we call our conscience. Is using the whole for the part as a literary device. So when we read heart in verses 19, 20, 21, we should think of the conscience. And today we're going to consider what the conscience is so that we can appreciate the fullness of what John says in these verses here. God gave us a conscience to be, as John MacArthur says, the soul's automatic warning system. That's what our conscience is, the soul's automatic warning system. Uh, let me give you a helpful illustration that is going to be, I'm going to be referring to it throughout this sermon and likely next week's sermon as well. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet, Avianca is a Columbia, Colombian airline that flies, um, used to only fly Colombia, Spain, but now flies all over South America. But in 84, a, one of their jets crashed in, in a mountain, into a mountainside in Spain. And investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery when they found the black box. And I think we're all familiar with the idea of the black boxes. There are two of them in the airplane. There's the cockpit reporter. They record what's going on in the cockpit and also what is being communicated via through the radio. And when the investigators found the black box of this particular jet, they, would, they were horrified by what they heard. They heard... That several minutes before the accident, a computer, a synthesized voice, a computer voice came on in the cockpit saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the pilot, thinking that the system, the automatic system was, mis, uh, was mistaken, wasn't working right, yelled, shut up, gringo, and turned it off. Two minutes later, they hit the side of a mountain and everybody on board died because they ignored the automatic warning system in the plane that was telling them to pull up, pull up. Uh, This is a real story and this real story is a good parable to illustrate how we currently treat the warning message of of the conscience, how Postmodern people treat the warning messages of their conscience. The wisdom of this age says that guilt feelings are nearly always wrong or hurtful. Therefore, we should turn them off. 
that we should do whatever we can to eliminate any sort of guilt feeling in our lives just by eliminating the feeling, not doing anything else. Uh, in our schools, there's a great emphasis on building self-esteem in the children. Uh, there, uh, in, for the last 10 years, there's been comparison between students in the United States and in Korea, Japan, China, and a few European countries and a couple South American countries, and specifically in STEM, and so science, technology, engineering, math. And math, American students consistently score, score in tenth place. There are ten nations being compared. So the objective tests are always, they've been consistent for the last ten years being last place. But in the psychological tests, they are consistently scoring first place as how well they felt about taking the test. <laughs> so, and that's kind of our culture, the idea of, of building up our self-esteem and our focus to self. And to do that, we need to eliminate any sort of guilt feelings just by eliminating the feelings themselves. As Christians, we can't accept that. But we need to figure out what to do about the conscience. What is the conscience? How much attention should we pay to the pain of a grieved conscience? Is the conscience infallible? How do we know whether the guilt we feel is legitimate or whether we are simply burdened with an excess of anxiety. What, roles, what role does the conscience play in the life of a Christian who wants to pursue sanctification according to the biblical means? And these are the questions that we're going to be trying to answer today, the next Lord's Day, at least those two times before we actually are ready to consider exactly what John is teaching in 1 John 3, 18 through 24. So let us start today with a question, what is the conscience? And let's see how far we can get on this. It is generally seen by the postmodern world, that's the world we live in, as a defect. The conscience is a defect that robs people of their self-esteem. Therefore, the conscience needs to be eliminated. This, you can see that, that in seminal form, not in seminal form, almost full-blownly developed in the early 1900s, early 20th century with Freud. Remember what Freud's goal? Freud's goal is to silence the superego because the superego keeps the id from doing what it wants. And the poor ego gets caught in the middle. And the id was just... The idea of letting your heart do what it wants. Have you ever heard that? Just follow your heart. Just do what your heart wants. That's the id that Freud wanted to liberate. Now, the technical terms are not used anymore, but it's, it's all over our culture. The idea is it doesn't matter what your conscience is saying. As long as you do it from your heart, you should be able to do it. Now, just as a bonus comment, the worst advice you can give anybody is to say, follow your heart. Because the heart is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah tells us. In actuality, the ability to sense our own guilt is a tremendous gift from God. The ability to, to feel guilty is a gift from our Lord. God designed it into the very framework of the human soul. It's part of our innermost being to be able to understand when we've done something wrong. 
It is the automatic warning system that keeps on telling us, pull up, pull up, when we are in danger of death, spiritual death. The conscience is an innate, that is from birth, from conception, ability to sense right and wrong. Everyone possesses it. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the apostle says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also being witness, and between themselves their thoughts, uh, and between themselves their thoughts accusing, or else excusing them. So what's Paul saying? Look, this is not a cultural social norm. The conscience is not something that's built up by the culture that you live in, the social pressures and so on. It's innate. The Gentiles who are not part of the Jewish culture, who never heard about the law of God, have a conscience because God put that in their hearts. And they're able to, by natural revelation, by being made in the image of God, discern what is good and what is evil, and they have that conscience accusing or excusing them. The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. That's what the conscience does. When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and fear. And another emotion that people are trying to get rid of completely is shame. And yet there is a biblical place for shame. When when we follow our conscience, it commends us, bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, well-being, and gladness. So the conscience is acting and helping us figure figure out how to navigate the world we live in according to what we believe is right and wrong. Now the word conscience itself comes from two Latin words that parallel the Greek words that we find in New Testament, which means knowing together, knowing alongside. Our conscience knows our inner motives and true thoughts. Now, even, even the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for conscience is leb, which just happens to be the same word for heart. Because in the Hebrew mind, the conscience is so intertwined with the human nature that it makes no lexical distinction between the two. That is, he didn't think they needed two words to talk about the same thing because they're so connected. Your heart and your conscience are so connected that one word would be enough to tell us what it is. So when David prays in the psalm that we read this morning, the response of reading, when he prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God. He was seeking to have his life and his conscience cleansed so that he can operate according to what is true in the scriptures. So, God gave us a conscience for our good. But multitudes today respond to it by attempting to suppress it, overrule it, or silence it. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. They conclude that the real blame for their wrong behavior lies somewhere else. Maybe in a childhood trauma. The way that they were raised. Societal pressures, disease, or any sort of shift. Because it couldn't possibly be their fault that they did something wrong. And that's why they feel bad about it. 
To respond to the conscience with these arguments is the same thing, tantamount to yelling, shut up, gringo, to your conscience. Now, it is possible to virtually nullify the conscience through repeated abuse. It is possible to silence your conscience by, by abusing it. In Romans 1.32, so if you're starting verse 17 or 18 of Romans, Paul is describing the depravity of all humanity. And the impression you get by the way it's written that he's going through different rings to use Dante's uh, words, different rings of depravity or perhaps different levels of depravity or of, of hellish behavior. And as the chapter continues, the depravity of man is described as worse and worse. The more man resists, more humanity resists God, the further down in this hellish depravity man goes. And in verse 32, Paul says, Who, at the bottom, at the lowest level, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They've suppressed the knowledge of God, and they've gone against their conscience so often that now they, it's not just that they don't feel bad anymore when they sin. They actually applaud sin. And they go the opposite way of what God had intended them to do. Paul says again in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, a similar thing when he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, again, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctors of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, you understand the notion of searing? Uh, if you're cooking a steak, uh, you want to sear it so you can, the flavors come, come out, the juices stay inside. But the, the searing makes so that what's inside can't come out. And that's exactly what we do when we don't listen to our conscience. When we tell our conscience, shut, shut up, gringo, stop talking to us. It's still functioning, but it's seared. What's inside doesn't come out anymore. And once the, the, the conscience is silenced, you are flying blind and in greater danger than ever. However, the most defiled conscience, the most silenced conscience, will not remain silent forever. When we stand in the judgment day, every person's conscience will side with God, the righteous judge. According to, to the scriptures, at that day, we'll know we've, what we've done. And as the book of Revelation says, Oh, that the rocks will fall upon us. That it would be better to be crushed by the rocks than to deal with the judge who is going to righteously judge us according to what we've done and according to what we have believed. Richard Sibbs, he was a... Uh, 17th century pastor in uh, England, a Puritan. Uh, probably his most famous book is um, Smoking Flax and the Bruise. A Bruise Reed, actually. It's just a Bruise Reed is his most famous book we have in our library. But it, it, Richard Ribs, did, uh, <laughs> Richard Sibbs, not Ribs. Uh, <laughs> according to, to him, 
the conscience can be pictured as a court in the council of the human heart. And he says that the conscience, the clerk or the secretary, to record what we have done exact, in the exact details. It's interesting, in Jeremiah 17, the same chapter, it talks about the heart being desperately wicked. Jeremiah says this, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. Their conscience, even though they may not act according to it, keeps record of everything that we've done in the exact details. According to Sibs, the conscience is the accuser that lodges a complaint against us when we're guilty and a defender to side with us in our innocence. And Paul says that in Romans 2 when he says that even in the unbelieving world, our conscience either accuses us or excuses us in Romans chapter 2.15. Sibs says that the conscience is the witness giving testimony for or against us. Paul claimed that in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, he says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul says, you're bringing charge against me, but my conscience is clear that I followed God in whatever I did. Sib says that the conscience is the judge condemning or vindicating us. That's the sense that's used in 1 John 3. 23 and 21. He says that the conscience, the executioner, smiting us with grief when our guilt is discovered. I remember the incident when, when David cut the corner of Saul's robe in the cave. Now, all, the, all the soldiers said, Kill him, kill him, kill him. He says, I'm not going to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed, but he cut the corner. And there the Spirit, the Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Samuel that David's heart troubled him. Because he had cut Saul's robe, accused him. It was the executioner of guilt upon David. And then Sibs ends his description of conscience with this. He says that he compares the punishment of a violated conscience with a flesh of hell. When, you, when your conscience is accusing you, it is a little look into hell. Because in hell... We're going to be constantly accused of everything that we've done against God. Having said all that, though, it's important that we realize that the conscience is not infallible. It is not the source of revelation about right and wrong. Its role is not to teach us moral and ethical ideas or ideals. It is not, its role is to hold us accountable to the highest standards of right and wrong we know and believe to be true. And that's important. Our conscience works according to what we believe to be true and to be right. And the conscience is informed by truth or by what we think is true. So the standards it's, it holds us to may not necessarily be biblical ones. Do you, do you understand that? That our conscience may hold us to wrong standards that we believe to be true. It can be reprogrammed, as it were, the conscience can. The world knows that. The world knows that conscience can be reprogrammed. And that's why it forces ungodly ideas upon children through school systems at earlier and earlier ages in order to 
reprogram the conscience so that what is good is now called evil, and what is evil is now called good. So we may choose not to send our kids to public school, which I hope is everyone's parents' choice here, and that's, that's good. But we can't stop there. We need to be involved in school boards. We need to be involved in curriculum decision-making because it's not just our children that we need to protect. We need to protect the children everywhere. And the children today are the society of tomorrow. And the more they are convinced that good is bad and bad is good, the harder it will be to proclaim the gospel to them and to exist as faithful followers of Jesus Christ today because the conscience is reprogrammable. And everybody seems to know that except for the church in general. And we have to get hold of that. Paul gives us an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where he describes those that had a a wrongly programmed conscience in thinking that eating meats offered to idols was wrong. That belief in itself was sin. And they needed to change that. They needed to be programmed again with the Word of God to have a conscience that really holds them to the standard of the Scriptures, not so some other standard that God had given them. Now, as we come to a close today, how is the conscience cleansed? If you have a guilty conscience, if your conscience is accusing you, how is your conscience cleansed? Well, the primary way the conscience cleanses is by the blood of Christ in your salvation. In Hebrews 10, verse 22, the Holy Spirit says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This, this expression, having our hearts sprinkled, is written in such a way that says that we are in the state of having our hearts sprinkled. That's how we exist. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, and we, are, we can have a, a pure conscience. Now, this does not mean that there is something magical in the physical thing that ran through Jesus' uh, veins. No, it's not that literally the blood of Jesus somehow spilled Upon us, it means that Christ's sacrifice on the cross accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish atonement and forgiveness of sins. So the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By, those, by whose stripes you were healed, our sins were imputed, counted as his, his righteousness is imputed to us. So when our conscience mercilessly condemns us, the blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness. We've already seen that in the book of 1 John. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just forgive us. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, don't sin, John says, but if you sin, we have an advocate standing with the Father, our propitiation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without a spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And here we see that God designed the conscience to drive us to Himself in Christ Jesus. That's the only way it can be cleaned, cleaned, cleansed. 
as the apostle says in Romans 8, who shall bring a, a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the, he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, it also he is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ cleanses our conscience. Christ regulates our conscience. Christ makes so that our conscience is fully operational. So that when he says, pull up, we pull up immediately instead of yelling, shut up, gringo, to our conscience. People of God, God, in his great love for us, gave us a warning system designed to point us to Christ. That system has also been corrupted by sin, and sometimes it goes off when it shouldn't. Yet, even in its corrupted state, it points us to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if your conscience is convicting you of something, anything, don't ignore it. Take it seriously and run to Christ. Run to Christ. Even if, you, if you're feeling bad about the wrong thing, run to Christ. Because it is His blood that cleanses our conscience. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who forgives through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful to you, that our consciences would be completely educated by your word, and that we would listen to it. We pray that you continue to point us to your Son. We love him. We are thankful that his blood covers us, and we're thankful that we are secure in your hands. Father, we pray that you'd enable us to continue to follow you faithfully, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.